Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, listener, pod host Stefan Rolnick here. Just before we start the show, because I forgot to mention this at the top of the show, the episode is in two parts. First, you'll hear me talking to Alison McGovern about Boris Johnson and his many middle names. And then you'll hear Henna Shah talking to Tom Newmark-Jones about local change. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host for today, Stefan Rolnick, and I am joined here this lunchtime with Alison McGovern. Hello, how you, Stefan. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I mean, um, my train wasn't terribly delayed by all the bad weather, so hmm. I think that makes me relatively unique in the yeah, UK. Mine was. Was I w- it? I was stuck in a tunnel for 45 minutes. No morning. way. I'm sorry yeah. to have a bit in there. Yeah, no, it was difficult. Well, let's, public, let's, all your public transport woes. Yeah, well, we can maybe come on to nationalisation if we have time. But we're just going to do a kind of quick roundup of what's been going on in the news. We're only a week or two weeks into the Tory leadership contest. Feels like a, it feels like a lifetime. And it, it does. feels like forever. It's completely exhausting. Um, it's heating up quicker than our planet with uh, regressive tax cuts being handed out faster. You can say Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. Wow, is, you actually did is, manage to say that, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> so, De um, Apart from making sense of Boris Johnson's many names. And um, I'm like, I'm like in a good place here because I do not have a middle name. Alison really? and McGovern are my only names. So I feel like I've got a moral high ground here. That's super there. cool, like Pele. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> not like Pele. Well, I haven't seen you play football yet. Do you have, it's not like Pele. Do you have any crazy middle names? Uh, Louis. Louis, as in the 14th. Yeah, I was wow. nearly called Louis. Okay. Which I think is actually quite a difficult one because I think people don't really take Louis seriously. Do they I not? think Louis sounds way too playful, you know. Whereas Louis. Stefan is a, a yeah. good series. <laughs> I think they're both good names. I quite like Louis. <laughs> we were talking about Boris Johnson and his yeah. many names. Of course, we're recording this on Monday. So yesterday was the Tory leadership debate, yeah. which as many of our listeners will know, Boris Johnson wasn't present at. No, he bunked off. So I think, you know, you can get into the details of what was said and who said what about who because the Tories love the internal gossip but I think actually the really important thing is to step back because these debates I think in many ways are almost a distraction from the real story which is that the countdown timer is still ticking oh my goodness who's doing what about Brexit no one exactly so I mean we we that's that's not quite true in the sense of lots of members of parliament are worried about what would happen if we were facing no deal again and we had one attempt to 
put you know barriers around the government to make sure that they can't just run the clock down and i think we will see some more of that it's fair to say so it's not like nobody's doing anything it's more just like the whole attention of the conservative party is on themselves and their own leadership and that is a problem do you think i mean where do you land on the debate i think pre-2016 the hope used to be i hope they pick their most ridiculous candidate because then we'll beat them in a general election but i think if you know the last few years have taught us anything is be careful what you wish for i mean it's kind of it 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 is difficult in the sense of we obviously hope for a general election to get rid of them meanwhile we hope for somebody who will do the least possible damage but also i mean it's not like there's loads of tory members out there who are dead interested in what labor party members and labor mps have to say so it's kind of an irrelevant discussion really i suppose i just hope that whoever wins they take seriously about the fact that we are in a Hong parliament. So it'd be really, really good if they could work out how they're going to get a deal that people from all parties can vote for. And there's really like only one route on the table there, which is put that deal to a confirmatory referendum of the public. That's how they, mm. that's how they could do it. So I hope that whoever wins, they take that message really seriously. I mean, the concerning thing is, is it looks like the Conservative Party is moving further and further to the right. And I'm interested just to hear, because it looks like the Conservative Party, as we know it, or as we thought we knew it, is is kind of changing almost beyond recognition. Or, or you could maybe say that there's true colours coming out wherever you fall on that. But we saw today uh, Jeremy Hunt taking the side of President Trump. Um, Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and the, so for the listeners that don't know, uh, President Donald Trump retweeted well-known far-right Twitter troll Katie Hopkins um, who was making incredibly Islamophobic uh, dog whistle comments about Sadiq Khan on Twitter. And when questioned about it today, Jeremy Hunt said that while he wasn't happy with the word choice, I'm paraphrasing here, but that the, the quote was that 100% agree with the sentiment. Which is a disgrace. Trump. I mean, we're supposed to be respecting the office of president because of our important historic relationship, despite the person who's currently occupying the role of president of the United States. Like that, I think is a reasonable request of people. Like we respect America as a country and respect the office, even as we like massively wildly in every way disagree with the person who's currently in the office. But Jeremy Hunt can't even stretch himself to defend London's mayor, like the, the capital city of our country. Surely it's the patriotic thing to do to say that like, it's not right for the president of the United States to like, abuse him based on his background and his religion like surely it, that's obviously unpatriotic i mean i think the thing that really makes me quite anxious is that the goalposts seem to be moving further and further and faster and faster than they have done before you know if this story about jeremy hunt if you went back in time and told someone you know nine years ago that this was going to be a story i mean they wouldn't believe you and i think what i worry about is that this is becoming norm more normal more normal we're becoming more desensitized to yeah. it i'm worried we don't have the language or we haven't found the language to talk about what's happened to the conservative party in a way that acknowledges how far outside the norms we are yeah i think that's probably true so when i think about um like i'm old enough to remember john major as prime minister like a man that i didn't agree with very much but he was somebody who I definitely think would have and does now like kind of respect the idea of like people in society needing like to try and get along and rub along with each other like no matter the kind of politics, mm. Labour Tory politics. 
that would almost certainly, I think, you know, be, have been true of most of the people of that kind of major, John Major era and the likes of George Osborne and David Cameron as well. Whereas now we've got, you know, the Tory party rushing to side with Trump over the mayor of London. It's frankly ridiculous. And, you know, next weekend we'll have the great get togethers marking the mm. contribution of my colleague, Joe Cox, who was murdered by a far right um, person who, you know, worked really, really hard on several issues, but Syria notably with the conservative government, you know, she sat down with Tory ministers to try and persuade them of her case alongside Andrew Mitchell, who was, you know, Tory chief whip. Mm. Like it's, it is possible to think that the normal way of doing things in British politics is to try and find cross-party consensus if you can. I think about the London Olympics, mm. you know, where, yeah. where the baton was passed from Ken Livingstone, in fact, to Boris Johnson. And everybody thought it was roughly the right thing to do to all kind of back the London Olympics and, and work together on it. You sort of can't imagine that happening now. Mm. The Tory party has like gone off into the wilderness so much. And yeah. I think, to be honest, you know, we're always at risk as well of people on, on the left doing that, not recognising that there's certain things that mm. we should be sort of trying to be the bigger person on, you know. I think, and I think there's been a slight dishonesty in the discussion around, uh, you know, the candidates at like Rory Stewart versus Dominic Raab. And I think there's been kind of a willful confusion of their ideas and their ends and their means in the sense that to say that, oh, well, Rory Stewart and Dominic Raab are exactly the same. Rory Stewart has a lot of views on the way this country should be, which I think we all vehemently disagree with and are in politics to try and overturn. But then there's also a conversation about how they want to get there. And there's some of these candidates who are willing to use the kind of oldest populist techniques in the book. And there's some that want to kind of play ball behind the rules to you know stick to our norms and yeah that is actually a meaningful difference which i think yeah is I, I think that's right and we saw that over prorogation so dominic Raab saying that he basically like been off the house of commons because if he couldn't get his way like forget democracy which is obviously like an outrage mm. and to be fair he got called out by the other candidates mm. on that um albeit by people like rory stewart who rory stewart over the weekend was talking about um national citizens um, service and some like kind of uh like the the idea of national service now um when i hear people talk about national service if by that they mean young people mm. doing lots of volunteering and being involved in society then that's okay but actually what they normally mean is this idea of like young people from quite wealthy backgrounds like being put into the kind of situation that like young people from more ordinary backgrounds mm. face because Actually, what they're revealing there, I think, is that they don't really, they, they see like a lot of more wealthy young people not really understanding mm. the circumstances of people who have less money than them. Yeah. And, you know, there is an answer to that, which is make sure that all young people go to similar sorts yeah. of schools. Yeah, I think somebody quite funnily suggested on Twitter, we should have national service, but only for the people who suggest that we should have <laughs> national, national service. service. Exactly. I was like, if, you know, if you think that actually what young people need is to be put into a situation where they have to deal with people from all kinds of backgrounds, it's like, yeah, go and ask some young people who managed to fight their way into Russell Group Universities or Oxford or Cambridge. And then you will understand what it takes for a young person to deal with 
folk from backgrounds that are not like their own. If you think that is the main problem in, in our society, then just go and look what is going on in our universities and you will realise that actually the thing that you think is a problem is created by the class structure in our society. And if you think that's a problem, the answer is to take apart that class structure. It's not to create some sort of like <laughs> program where people go on outward bound trips together. Like... <laughs> It's just, it's really maddening and it comes up all the time. And it's something that I would definitely disagree with Rory Stewart about all the while we both think that parliamentary democracy is quite a good thing. Yeah, to think that that's significant common ground nowadays kind of tells you a lot about Crazy. how we got here. And, you know, for the Twitter centrists who are interested, that is where we diverge with Rory yeah. Stewart. Just to finish off, Tom Watson today gave um, a pretty kind of clear speech about where he thinks Labour should go and where Labour has been going wrong and his message was one that won't surprise our listeners which is that Labour needs to you know acknowledge the will of its members and come out and campaign for a public vote and you know commit wholeheartedly to backing Remain but one of the interesting things about the way Tom Watson's been doing this is he doesn't see this as a kind of divisive thing there's actually a way we can do this that brings a country together that it doesn't just involve saying you were wrong and we want to overturn it that message feels like it's starting to get clearer and clearer. Do you feel like the momentum behind that is building now? Or, you know, I think does every making, time we feel like we've got I it? Think, I think we're making progress and we've got momentum. <laughs> um, to, I think that's a joke that many, many people have made, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I think it does feel like since last September, we've been basically in a massive exercise of stating the obvious. Mm. And obvious point number one is that the Labour Party is, you know, a pro-European party. Mm. And that's been true since Jacques Delors turned up at the TUC in 1988 and basically, you know, said that um, that the European Union wasn't just about some kind of capitalist club. Mm. It was about solidarity and organised solidarity and that, so that's been true for like, you know, a whole generation. So the idea that the Labour Party like doesn't understand that is mad. Um, also, the fact of what our policy is, it's been true since September um, last that we wanted to have a public vote. Yes, ideally, we'd have a general election, but we haven't had one. So yeah. it's like a statement of the glaringly obvious. The other thing that's true, though, is that like if we're going to get elected ever as a Labour government, like we can't allow ourselves to be divided by this remain leave thing mm. forever. And there are loads of things that people are really bothered about in part that fueled the Brexit vote that have got to be dealt with. Mm. So whether that's um, the position of towns in our countries, country and the lack of economic growth or job growth that we've seen in towns uh, that really frustrated and angered people, um, or whether that's about a sense that like the, the government was just just didn't really care and expected people to vote for the status quo when actually the status quo is really not very good for people, then I think there's loads of reasons to think that you can bring um, Remainers and Leavers together. I suppose the, the, the slight caveat to that is it, that's easy to say that it will be much harder to do that if we leave the European Union. Because yeah. if we're also having to grapple with quite radical change in our economy, that is really bad for people who have least in society, then it will be really hard yeah. to bring the country together. If we're able to, you know, if we're able to say, look, all of the problems that we have won't be dealt with by Brexit 
And if we don't do Brexit, we can deal with a lot of the problems that we have. Mm. Then it will be much easier to have that unifying mission for the next Labour government. I think um, an exercise in stating the obvious sums up as about as well as I've heard anything sum up in the last year in politics. Indeed, yeah. Um, so now we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, you will hear Henna Shah, who last week sat down with organiser Tom Newmark-Jones to talk about local change, reclaiming the concept of community and why progressives should be hanging out at their local GP. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm very happy to be joined by Tom Newmark-Jones. So Tom is an expert in community development and is currently CEO of the Peel Institute, which is a community development charity in North London. Hi, Tom. Lovely to have you. Thank you very much for having me. So you're here today because we talk a lot on this podcast about how we change the world and how we think our progressive politics can change the world. And what I really want to talk to you about today is obviously we're Labour Party podcast. We talk a lot about politics, you're like, you know, the leadership runs and riders, blah, blah. But actually people are our members and people are part of our movement because they want to make real social and political change. Now, just because we're not in power, it doesn't mean that great things aren't happening on a local level and in civil society as well. So I know you're an expert in civil society, community development and place-based change, but can you tell me exactly what all those things are and why they're important? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, as with any area of life, there can be a jargon around this and kind of technical terms and it can turn people off. But I suppose the most simple way of going into it is everyone knows that they live somewhere, they work somewhere, and they want to enjoy that place. And probably even more than that, they want to in some way be lifted up and have opportunities from that place. And we know that's not always the case. There's a whole variety of ways in which people feel like they don't belong in the area or um, they don't get anything out of the area. I remember doing a project in on a seaside town and speaking to someone and saying, well, what would you like for your area in a few mm. years' time? And her saying, I'd like to not live here anymore, please. Um, <laughs> and it, it shows a feeling about a place. Mm. And you can get into these questions like, well, would you rather be in a, in a poor in a place that was 
with rich people and poor people, or mm. would you rather be in a place that was you were poor and there were lots of other poor people around? Well, that's a hard question, but the fact is we know there are those different types of places. And the way we try and make those better places to live in will be quite different in the different places. And so often there's two parts to it. There's kind of what charities and governments and things like that think about a place and they might have a kind of a plan or something like we want this place in 10 years time to be like mm. this a hub of that sort of like your northern powerhouse yeah, exactly fine yeah but then there's a much more fluid organic kind of natural sense of you know my neighborhood my town my city my region what mm. i want that to be like now that's going to be very different from person to person and at different stages in your life so at some points you might think London is my place. And mm. then at some points you might think it's just my road uh, that's my place. Um, and the way in which you improve and feel part of or don't feel part of those places, they're very different. Um, but they're quite important. And you can see they're important for both government and for individuals who are living in places. So we're talking about social change and working in the community in those places. Um, and I was doing some reading about your work, doing my homework, um, as podcast host, occasionally I do it. Uh, and a thing I was reading about is your writing about the role of emotional intelligence in local change making. You said that you worked as a community organizer in Washington, D.C. with single homeless men. When you did that, what did you learn about the connection between building relationships and making effective local change? Yeah, that's a great question as well, I suppose. Um, I started off working in D.C. Um, where when I moved there, I, I used to think, oh, my God, this is so terrible. There's just people on the street everywhere, living rough, begging, um, scrapping for food. We never see anything like that in England. And that mm -hmm. was kind of 2011. And obviously we now see that in lots of places uh, in this country. And it's kind of terrible. But they don't have the same safety welfare net that we have. And so if you were, for example, a single guy who was sent to jail for some drug-related habit or practice or selling, and then you were let out, they wouldn't give you money to pay for your rent. Mm. And maybe you don't want to fall back in with the old crowd. So what the hell do you do? And so I had this idea for a project where one of the things people could do is they could build up their networks. Because mm. we all know the best way of finding a job is a friend finds it for you. And the, play, the way lots of people, if you and I were really getting in trouble, we'd probably phone our parents and aunts, mm. something like that, who could help us up. So if you don't have those relationships, it's tough. So I started off thinking, right, I'm going to help these guys build up their networks. And there's this great guy, I remember uh, him coming up to me and being like, you know what, Tom, you were right. I'm playing bass in the church band. Oh, wow. And through that, someone's given me a tip and I've got a job in the building site. Now he didn't go up to the church and say, can someone give me a job? Mm. He said, I love playing bass. Can I be in the band? Mm. And these things flow. So I thought that was the type of relationships I was going to be helping people build. But that was only really part of it. And another part of it was, they had this middle-class guy from England coming in and talking to them. Mm -hmm. And they're these working-class black guys from DC. And for me to talk to them about how they build up their relationships, I had to build up a relationship with them. And that's much easier said than done. I might as well have been an alien or from another, you know, yeah. another planet or something like that. My experiences were so, so different to theirs. My frame of reference, I remember I had to watch all of these American sports just to have something to talk with them about. I didn't understand any of the <laughs> phrases and I had to learn all of this. I can sort of just imagine you watching like a basketball game with a really analytical eye, like, yeah, what's going exactly. on now? What's going on now? Oh, crap. Exactly. I felt like it was my homework. Right, right. Third down. <laughs> what's a down again? Um, but what I realized through that is 
change only comes, well, one of the ways change comes is through relationships. If you can build up networks, if you can build up relationships, you can make that much more change. But building relationships in the context of big inequalities is hard mm. because people will come to these things with prejudices, with experiences before. They'll be anxious. They'll think, right, he's a white guy. Here's my experiences before with white guys. Maybe this is what white guys are going to be like. They feel anxious. And I also was coming with prejudice and backgrounds. Mm. And that makes it much harder to build up relationships. Mm. And we see that all over in our society as we are variously polarized and divided. Any attempt to, for example, make a neighborhood a better place, you straight away come up with the fact that, well, there's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of history going yeah. on. And so how are we going to navigate that? And everyone starts feeling anxious. And then you've got to deal with that anxiety or respond to it in some way. And if you don't, and if you just pretend, well, we're just going to do a summer festival and it will be <laughs> fine, or we're going to do an interfaith football thing and it will just yeah. be fine. Maybe It's not only that maybe it won't be fine, maybe it'll be worse than fine. And maybe what will happen is people will bump up against each other and their prejudices will be reaffirmed. They'll have a bad experience mm. and it will mean everything they thought They'll think it double. And the next time you want to do something where you bring them together, they won't come at all. Uh, so it's a real risk and it requires um, quite a few skills. And I think not just for individuals, for organizations as well. And you mentioned sort of relationships in the context of community and prejudice. Now, we have sort of the idea of community um, and being rooted come up a lot in our political discourse at the moment. Um, I think we can see a backlash against migrants and a sort of backlash against a regional and or sort of metropolitan town split. Um, and I think it was Paul Embry, a uh, favourite person, who um, described lots of uh, metropolitan Labour voters as rootless cosmopolitans. I wonder what that means. Mm. Um, but it seems to be something that's been taken up by social conservatives. And we can also see that you know, people on the centre-left, so we've seen the Danish centre-left party have done quite well in the recent elections. And part of that is they've got a great centre-left programme, but one of the areas where they've ceded ground, or where I think they've ceded ground, we certainly as progressives think they've ceded ground, is on the, on the issue of migration. How can we create a narrative of community? Obviously, you work in North London, which is a really diverse area. How can we create an idea of, or a sense of community in an area that is naturally diverse, has to be from different cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, the word itself, community, can be a help and a hindrance in this because on the one hand, it is a word that speaks very strongly to people. And, you know, a lot of people say, I want a sense of it or mm. I have it and it's so great around here, da, da, da. But then on another hand, it's kind of a Hovis ads and like <laughs> nostalgia. And partly that's just impossible to do. No one's going to live in that Hovis ad. But also, there's a good chunk of us that just wouldn't want to, even if you could. One of the great things about living in a place like London is you can go anywhere. You don't have to. It's not like a village. Like mm. It's not like my neighbour knows my comings and goings the whole time. And we like that. And that's important for the economy and so on. Um, so it is a help and a hindrance, this word. But if I was going back to what I was saying earlier about the kind of context of building relationships, one of the things I would say is for to build inclusive type of relationships and community one of the things you do have to do is to appeal to a sense of identity so people mm. are going to come to something if it speaks to them in some way and so 
as we know, race and ethnicity can be that thing. And then that can become a really toxic situation because mm. you're calling out to people from this group. And that's one of the advantages of place because it is a shared thing. And so we're in this neighborhood. Now, maybe we think very differently about this neighborhood than our neighbor, mm. but there is a certain sense in which we're all here. And then there are certain universal public services, which also we're all there. So my kid goes to the primary school. Mm. We all, 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 mm. all the parents along the way start to get to know each other. Now, that's not enough. Just living next door to someone mm. or going to the same primary mm. school doesn't necessarily build a community. You can have a primary school where you drop your kid off, you pick them up, mm. you never see another parent or you only see the other parents who are exactly like mm. you and the half who aren't like you, you don't do that. It's London, none of us know our neighbors. So place can be a starting point, but it can't be the end point for building mm. community. But I think it's one of the ways we can go into thinking about a different approach to mm. building these relationships than one that's based on racial grievances mm. or kind of ethnic tensions. Mm. But I think you have to be really eyes open about it and say, there's a reason that these kind of divisive calls work, which is they speak to a very profound sense of someone's identity. And some of the talk about community and place can be quite glib. Mm. So if you've got a local authority being like, are you proud of being a resident of Bromley? And you're like, I don't even is know. Is anyone? Right, exactly. What is Bromley even? It's just like an arbitrary administrative kind of map mm. that like whoever it was Macmillan drew in the 70s. Yeah. So that's not, that's not going to cut it. You need something quite a lot firmer mm. in people that's going to get them out, get them mixing and doing stuff. And um, sometimes people who build communities shy away from that a little bit. And mm. I think... Not to say you want to learn from these uh, right-wing groups, but you have to take them on in that. No, absolutely. And it actually reminds me, we got a little bit off-piece, but I was talking to a um, community organiser from Hope Not Hate, um, who we talk about a lot on this podcast, um, and who was working in a local area uh, sort of like a year, year and a half ago, maybe a bit longer now, because it's been a long time, um, trying to get rid of the British National Party. And he was talking about how the thing that brought, there were lots of tensions in the community and the British National Party were able to exploit those tensions. And actually some of their most effective actions were about providing the local community with shared projects. Mm. So planting trees mm -hmm. in the local mm -hmm. area. Um, one of the things they said was really effective as well was a walking school bus. And when you're talking about the school, that just reminded me. And it's a sense that like our children can get along and they speak the same language. And I'm entrusting my child to a parent from another community to take them somewhere. And therefore that trust in, in the individual starts to take root. And therefore the trust in the community as a whole starts to take root. And that really stuck with me because it's an action as simple as that, help them to remove the sort of politics of fear mm. and hatred that encourage British National Party. I think that's spot on. And I think one of the things you can learn from that is there's lots of places where the gardening project would end up being two gardening projects, mm. one for one race group, one for another <laughs> racial group. And like, sometimes that's how things pan out. Mm. And what you need is someone who's slightly able to take that look at it and be like, mm. we're running a gardening project where everyone's going to be welcome. And that's easier said than done sometimes. But I think if you can pull that off, people are rubbing up against each other day in, day out. They get to know their foibles, their insides out. Then someone says, oh, you know, that group, they're all like so-and-so. And you say, no, no. Her down the way, you know, him that I walk my kid to school with. No, he's not like that. And yeah, it gives you pause for thought. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we've spoken a lot about community more broadly and 
the effectiveness of creating those networks, which I think we can often sort of miss when we're talking about politics or policy. But really a lot of a lot of the change making at the moment, as I said at the beginning, happens in civil society more broadly. How do you view civil society and how important do you think it is? Yeah, I think this is a really significant question for policymakers and politicians, and there's a real tension behind it. And what I would say some people in the kind of civil society sector are as much to blame for the problems we've got into as some of the kind of more short-sighted politicians and policymakers, because there's a tendency to think civil society is registered charities who have a number from the charity commission. Mm. And more than that, who have an income and employ staff. Uh, Actually, we know that almost all charities don't employ staff. Mm. They're all volunteers. But also my feeling about civil society is it's much more than charities. I would think of universities, trade unions, campaigns, even social networks, social media. Um, this is all part of civil society in, in, in my understanding of that word. It's something that we are all in some way part of. And therefore, it's a very varied and contested space. Mm. So you will have right-wing parts of civil society and left-wing parts of civil society. We all know that when you talk about newspapers, but it's the same thing. What are the newspapers doing? They're contributing to a national thing in Mm. some way or another, whether we like it or not. Um, And I think it's that participating in the civic life of our society that is civil society. Political parties are part of civil society. Mm. You wouldn't ever read a government strategy on civil society that was like, what are we going to do about reforming the Conservative Party? (laughs) but they are. Maybe they it are. needs it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, maybe they could diversify their membership. I don't know how the leadership race would be different then. And I think what that means, why is it important? Twofold. It's important because if that's very weak, then it's very easy for moneyed and organised interests to get their ways because there's not any of this other stuff like contributing to the politicians. So the politicians will only hear from kind of the groups who are able to lobby them. Whereas if you've got this whole variety of churches and papers and unions and universities and whatever, there's a richer variety of um, voices. And the other reason it's important is, is there whether we like it or not? You can't try and pretend, well, there's no civil society. There's no conversation going on in this country. It's there. So you have to join it and you have to be part of it. And um, we've all seen that both in the Labour Party and more broadly, that people are here and there's there's battles uh, of all types afoot. And you have to be part of it. So given the political context that we've been talking about, I'm inclined to say that sort of a twofold thing has happened in that civil society has gained importance, um, but also that it is under greater threat. Um, So I'm going to ask you maybe a slightly uh, odd question, which is how do we create a civil society that's more important and stronger while it is weaker because it is under threat? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a hard one. I wouldn't know if I'd know all of the answers, but I think there's probably a way of splitting out into two parts. One of which is lots of people aren't participating, full stop. Mm. Um, They are watching a lot of TV. They are going to work. They are dropping their kids off at school. They have very limited networks and they're very uninvolved in a larger sense of things. We know this through, there's a famous book called Bowling Alone, and we know mm. this, this kind of line of argument. People are average, what is it, an average of four hours a day, people are watching TV. You are sitting there consuming stuff, 
you're not part of civil society. Well, what do we do about that? It has to be an attractive thing for people. There's no good making it feel like it's a worthy thing or like this is a good thing or anything like that. That sounds awful. Mm. Um, and also we don't want to make it sound like it's a thing for like loneliness or isolation. Mm. Like come along to this thing. You'll meet a bunch of other lonely people. <laughs> that just sounds awful. you meet a bunch of other losers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or... <laughs> We also can't be like, well, we'll just settle with who we've got. So we know when we do our thing, we always get this 20. Great. We'll just give up on all these other people mm. who aren't there. You have to be ambitious and you have to understand where people are. Go to them in their language. Make it enticing. That's just about bringing people into civil society. But then exactly as you say, there are organized um, and less organized and kind of chaotic elements in our society who are um, trying to do things that we all disagree with. And how do we combat them? Well, that's a good question. And people like Hope Not Hate and, and so on, I think would be better placed than me. But I do think um, there's a, a skill that a lot of us need to learn, which is about a, a kind of critical listening, where it's not just about say, going around to people and saying, what's important to you? Then they say a load of things, one of which might be they're incredibly racist. Mm -hmm. And you're like, cool. We're just going to reflect that back to you. We're just. You're a racist. Right. We'll oh. be racist too then. Okay. We want to be popular with you. We want to be popular with you. That, that type of listening, you know, it's prized insights, marketing. People want to understand what's mm. going on. But if you can have a relationship with those people, you can mm. maybe get into a franker discussion that's maybe on, well, look, I might disagree with you on this, but we've got this shared thing the project, the family, uh, whatever it might be, and a way in then. But Easier said than done, given the, um, I think, as you say, the growing strength of lots of these uh, kind of divisive movements and uh, the money that's uh, involved with lots of them is quite impressive sometimes and yeah. quite a thing to combat. Yeah. Um, we're now going to take a short break, but when we're back, we will talk about the new Labour civil society strategy. So Labour's recently put forward a new civil society strategy. And it should help solve some of the problems you're talking about. And it's called, rather catchily, I think maybe they spent a lot of the time on the name, um, it's called From Paternalism to Participation, uh, which sounds pretty good. But what does it actually say and what do you think of it? I think I'm reminded of uh, Gandhi's joke about uh, Western civilization that it would be a good idea. I, that's kind of my view <laughs> on Labour Party's civil society strategy. It would be a good idea if they had one but I don't really think this is one. What you've got in it is a pretty damning read of what Britain is like. It's kind of uh, doom and gloom. There's a thing, relationships are broken down, families aren't staying together. And mm. um, there's a phrase about society is fragmenting around us. You've got the kind of sense of like things yeah. falling into the sea and like- the, Things falling apart. Yeah, blah, blah, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's pretty scary. <laughs> and then you're like, and then the next thing you come to is they say a vision and it's a deeper democracy and stronger relationships and people who are part of things. And you're like, well, that sounds like an awful long way from where you were starting off. Let's see this ambitious- That sounds nice. Let's yeah, have that. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> much better. That. Yeah, I don't want to sink into the sea. I want to, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how am I going to get there? And then the bits in between are, they're really pretty thin gruel, I would say. They are um, some commitments, none of which I would necessarily have a problem with. There's a community innovation fund, which would be 
using some money locally to get things going. Well, who would who would disagree? Well, I probably, think local areas and local authorities could do with some money yeah. right now. So, but there's nothing in there about local authority funding, and so. Ooh. Yeah, that might be a bit of a challenge to, to head on. There's nothing in there about social media. There's nothing in there about a, a whole variety of things we might expect to see if we had a more um, sensible understanding of what civil society is. And I mean, when I was reading it, I was struck by um, there was a document that came out last week. I think George Monbiot and a few others mm. authored it, and it is a meticulously detailed and radical approach to reforming the land system. Now, I don't think anyone thinks half of it would necessarily get done, but their ideas in there, they're worked out, they're ambitious, people would take them or leave them, but there's something there. Whereas this document felt like a placeholder, um, not even a particularly effective opposition document. Mm. It wasn't a big attack on the Tories' record Mm. on civil society. Um, It was a few little scraps Mm. um, and... Sadly, I would say that is often the approach of the current uh, leadership of the Labour Party to civil society. It's not central to their thinking about how they would change the world. And weirdly, I find that sort of particularly concerning because obviously the Labour movement is a movement of civil society. You see campaigning groups, trade unionists, workers, the Fabians, everyone piling in historically. I'm, yeah, I'm really surprised about that. What, so... Is there anything significant? So you mentioned um, social media, local authority funding, generally a way to make stuff work that's missing. Is there anything else that you would want to include in your dream civil society strategy? I mean, there's probably stuff around power in society. There's probably something about race relations, Mm. you know, um, between inequality that you think would be quite important to this world about how people find out about things, about how they come together and participate. These are all missing. And broader than that, some of the biggest charities in our country are medical research charities. Mm. What's their situation? There's international development charities. What's their deal? You know, universities. Um, Even the way that unions um, are uh, at work and in in the communities. These are all very, very important questions for us. What's the role of campaigning organisations? And I think you're right to say it's, it feels strange, given the Labour Party and the broad family of kind of affiliated and kind of adjacent organisations. And you see sometimes this inability for the leadership to exactly grapple with this when elements of the family, the Labour family, fall out that they are allied with. So you see this over something like Heathrow. Mm. You've got kind of climate change campaigners and you've got unions mm. on different sides. And Corbyn wants to be friends with both of them. Mm. And he looks at it and it's just very hard for him to realise that one of the things about civil society is is really messy. Mm. You've got a bunch of people mm. affiliated with lots of different things. Maybe they think different things. Maybe they think similar things. They've got similar values, but different stuff. And operating mm. in that world is tough. And it's harder to just say, here are the goodies and here are the baddies, you know, for the many, not the few mm. in this world. And so I can see why you'd want to run away from that and just say, we'll end austerity and we'll do a Brexit that works with everyone because that's kind of a vague kind <laughs> that's of... That's a vague thing. Yeah, we can all get behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, I mean, finally, moving on from the vague things we can all get behind, um, we always aim on this podcast to give some, give people something to take away and do. Um, now, everyone who listens cares deeply about progressive social change and progressive politics and might at the moment be feeling that there isn't really a way to do that through politics. I mean, we've got Johnson as our future prime minister, it looks like. What do you suggest they get involved in? So 
I think there's a familiar story that a lot of people might say about how lots of the institutions that maybe um, an older generation grew up with in their area don't exist anymore. So Do you mean something like a church? The church, the yeah. chapel, you know, even the local branch mm. of the this, the that, the other. And so that used to be a big route in for a lot of people. Mm. And you can't say that to someone now. Oh, go down to your so-and-so club. Go yeah. down to your such-and-such club. Um, and that makes it tough. And so you can see why people may be going to much looser, more informal stuff on the internet, sounding mm. off and maybe being connected with people with quite specific similar values to them. Or they look to the centre, they look to Westminster and they mm. think, right, I'll get big change there. Or maybe I won't. But I think there are a couple of uh, things that are common to our neighbourhoods and uh, quite universal things. But they're often things that don't think of themselves in that way. I would particularly think about GPs and about schools. Now, lots of the people who run those things, the heads, the GPs, mm. they often think of themselves as professionals who are delivering a service. Um, you can go to primary schools and there'll be a sign up saying no loitering to mm. parents. Uh, you can go to um, a waiting room in a GP and you'll see three people because they're obsessed with moving people yeah. through as quickly as possible. And you can see why they're doing that. They're professionals running complex organizations. And then if you were to say to the GP, how much time are you in a day spending talking with lonely people who don't have a condition that you can prescribe something for or refer them to? Mm. They'll be like, all the sodding time. <laughs> and if you talk to the head teacher about, well, what's the biggest thing that mm. affects how good, how well kids are doing at school, their attainment, it'll be how much are the parents engaged? That's the biggest decisive yeah. thing. Uh, well, what are you doing about that? Nothing. It's hard enough for us to teach in the school. We're going to do stuff with the parents as yeah. well. I think this is a great way for people who have skills and interests who don't necessarily want to get into the hard edge of politics to get into their communities. Almost always these schools and uh, GPs will have some kind of group associated with them, patient participation, friends of, whatever it might be. You don't have to be a person who goes to the school even. And if you're saying... I want to help this school become a community thing. Mm. They've got a captive audience. They're sh short of money. They're desperate for people who come and do this. And, you know, different schools will react in different ways. <laughs> um, but I think that's a really nice way in for people. And uh, it's really rewarding. What you see is a bunch of smiley faces and you can get to do a lot of fun stuff. Um, and it doesn't feel like a lot of kind of worthy and slightly kind of abstract, pointless things that lots of kind of mm. the local meeting of the socialist reading group or whatever <laughs> might feel like that people aren't particularly attracted to a present company uh, accepted obviously you can also attend your local meeting of <laughs> socialist reading group don't worry i feel like i've been called out there <laughs> um on that note thanks a lot for joining us tom you've given us a lot to think about um we will be back on friday in the meantime subscribe rate and review bye <laughs>been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 